praise him. It's good stuff. Well, it is good to see you guys this morning, and uh, we're thankful that you're here. Is this for you? Okay, there you go. Um, this is Brian Reeves, everybody. you got to say hi to Brian this morning. Um, he's going to kind of help me out a little bit today. And, uh, this is your second week in a row being up here. It's pretty cool. Um, it's kind of crazy. He almost backed out on me at the last minute when we made the announcement about this being a PG-13 message. He came and said uh, during the welcome time he was going to go back to G2. He felt like he would be better off back in that area. Than they kicked me out. Right. <laughs> you tried and they kicked you out? Okay, that's good. Um, well, this morning we are going to be uh, continuing our series called You Asked For It and uh, tackling a, a tough question this morning, but one that uh, because of where we are in society and uh, things that are very vocal and very um, upfront in our face, so to speak, uh, in, in our culture today, it's a topic that needs to be addressed. And so we are going to do our best to try to tackle this topic and, uh, and discuss this. And the question for the day is uh, simply this. How, what does the Bible really say about homosexuality? And where does our church stand in light of the recent ruling by the Supreme Court uh, of the United States that gay marriage is recognized legally uh, in all 50 states? And so today we're going to try to tackle that a little bit. Um, it could be uh, maybe an awkward kind of thing for some of us. Um, we're the ones on stage, so it's really awkward for us. Um, we're the ones that have to talk about it in front of everyone. But, uh, but at the same time, I think that there is truth to be shared, and we're not going to shy away from or back away from what the truth of the Bible is that's expressed to us. And so we want to do this in a way that hopefully uh, won't, won't confuse people, but uh, will spark some conversation and, and that we can continue the conversation as we go through. But before we start answering the question, I want to kind of give you an illustration. So if you will, just in your mind's eye, think through this a little bit with me. Uh, imagine for yourself inventing something that is just remarkable. I mean, you come up with the invention of inventions, okay? Now, for those of you who aren't very creative, I'm going to give you an invention that you can kind of put in your mind. And so imagine, if you would, that you created the time machine. All right, some of you engineers have tried this before, haven't you? Uh, I know, in the room, there are people that are like, yeah, that doesn't work. I've tried. Um, imagine, though, that you created successfully a time machine, right? And as the creator of this invention, you know that it has amazing benefits. You know that it has amazing potential. You know that this is something that is revolutionary. Everyone is going to want to be a part of this uh, thing, this creation that you've, you've gotten a hold of, that you've made. And so everybody wants to be a part of this. But as its creator, you also realize the potential problems that something like this causes. And so as the creator of the invention of the time machine, for you Doctor Who fans out there, um, you need to put some boundaries on this time machine. You need to say to people, this is what I created this for. This is the way it works best. And if you misuse this, you can cause a lot of problems, right? You're going to destroy the space-time continuum. That's a real thing. It is out there, right? And we're going to destroy this bad boy if we're not careful with this time machine that I created. And so but in order to do our very best to give this thing its best place, its best recognition, to use it to its fullest potential, to its best capacity, there needs to be guidelines and rules. Or it could go off the tracks. And yet there are people that we would kind of see and go, well, okay, you know what? They're going to attempt to discredit you that you don't know what you're talking about. You created this thing. That's awesome. But there are better uses for it. We know better than you do as the creator uh, how to use this time machine. We know what its ultimate functions and purposes are. Uh, we know how it best makes us feel to use this for our benefit. And we're going to do whatever we want to with this time machine that you created. Forget your rules. Forget all your stuff. Uh, we know better than you, the creator of the time machine, how the time machine should work and what purposes it should fulfill. 
And when you start taking this illustration and now applying it to modern day real life, we're going to see something. God created sex. God created marriage. God created these beautiful things. And yet in our society, in our culture, in our world, and it's not just us. This has been going on for millennia. But there are people who look at God, the creator of these amazing, wonderful gifts, gifts that everybody wants to be a part of. If you remember being a teenager, you remember, I don't know, maybe this is just me. I was like, God, if you come back before I get to get married and have sex, I'm going to be so ticked off about that. Like, I am dreaming about this thing, and so we need to have this. I thought I was the only one. That no, no, man, that. it's me. <laughs> Fellas, raise your hands, all right? It is all of us. I don't know, ladies, maybe not so much for you. You were like the wedding. Like, wedding, come And we were like, honeymoon, right? And so that's where we were. Um, but basically, here's this thing, though, that we've kind of said, God, you created these things. You've given them parameters. You've put us in place. And yet we know better than you do what this is for. We know better than you do what sex is for. We know better than you do how marriage should behave. We know better than you, the creator, about how to benefit from these gifts that you've given to us. And so we've misplaced the gift. We've misappropriated the gift, right? And it is a gift. It's a beautiful gift that God gave to us for, for pleasure, for procreation, uh, for all these different things. And we go, this is the gift that God's given to us for the benefit of humanity, for the continuing of humanity. And yet there are people who take it out of its context and want to abuse the gift. And so here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 12. And he, he starts to talk about some things. If you have your Bibles this morning and want to turn here with me, we're just going to kind of look here really quickly. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 12. And Paul writes and says this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. But I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and yet God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Okay, so the very first thing we kind of see here is that everything is permissible. That's what Paul says. And he's quoting the people of his time as he's writing to the people in Corinth. He's quoting them. He's not making this statement. He, if you look in your Bible, it's in quotes. I have the right to do anything. Some translations say, everything is permissible for me. And Paul responds back, but not everything is beneficial. And here's where we are in our culture today. Everything is permissible. You, you can do whatever you want. And in fact, we are trying to do that. We're even legislating that. We can do whatever we want. And yet Paul would say, but in our culture and in the world, everything is not beneficial. Can you do certain things, right or wrong? Yes, you can. Are they beneficial to you? Not necessarily. Go rob a store this afternoon. Find out how beneficial that is to you when you get caught, right? It's permissible. You can do it if you want to, but it's not beneficial. And so we see this. We've made decisions about what's right and wrong for ourselves outside of God's revealed will. And we've said for ourselves, we've decided that if two people love each other, what's wrong with them getting married? I mean, they love each other, right? So why shouldn't they be able to get married? There's love between them. This is a beneficial. They're mutually making this decision. And so we've said it's okay for them to be married, even if they're of the same gender. So we've decided that if it feels good, it can't possibly be wrong. Everything is permissible to me. This feels good to me. So it can't be wrong if it feels good. And that's where we've kind of gotten in our logic. But what we've ultimately done is we've elevated our happiness over God's express will for the function of His creation. 
And we've made the pursuit of pleasure and joy for ourselves more important than God's expressed will of what He says is right and what He says is wrong. And regardless of what you think, when the Creator says, this is what I intended, this is right, regardless of how you feel, it will always be right. And your misuse of it will always be wrong. And so that's kind of the launching point today. And so today our world's decided that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, uh, regardless of, of the fact that God created, uh, that God's Word clearly condemns homosexuality. And we're going to talk about those things in a few minutes. In fact, there are many people out there who have kind of said that the Bible never actually even talks about homosexuality. I'm not sure that they've actually read the Bible, but they have these things. That, well, the Bible, it says that, but that's not what it meant. Or in that culture, it meant something completely different. We've taken it out of context. Uh, there are even people today, I've been reading a lot these last couple of weeks, studying and getting ready for this message. And, uh, and there are even people out there today who would go as far as to say the Bible not only doesn't say homosexuality is wrong, there are stories in the Bible that promote homosexual relationships. Uh, three examples specifically, uh, the relationship between David and Jonathan. There are groups of people out there that are saying David and Jonathan were a homosexual relationship. And they want to put this relationship of their great friendship, and the Bible puts it in the perspective of a great friendship, that they were engaged in a homosexual relationship. Yet the Hebrew words that they used to describe them are completely different. In the Hebrew, remember, we only have certain words. Everything is love for us, right? We only have one word for love, so I love my wife the same way I love tacos. Um, it's the same word. But in Hebrew, they would use different words to describe that. They would use the word eros uh, to describe the love that they have, their passion for their wife. They would use a completely different word to talk about tacos, had they had tacos. Um, and so you see these different words, and in the, the Old Testament you go, David and Jonathan had this phileo love, this friendship love. And yet there are people who want to attach to them an eros love. And that's not the case. Uh, Ruth and Naomi are another case that people point to and say, yeah, Ruth goes and lives with her mother-in-law Naomi after her husband dies. And so this is this homosexual relationship. And in fact, they're participating and engaging in this illicit homosexual relationship until Ruth decides that she wants to be married to a guy again and she marries Boaz. And so that's, but there's this whole thing. Uh, there are people who point to the story of Joseph and say Joseph was transgender uh, because he had a, a, a colorful coat that his father had given to him. Right? I mean, this is literally stuff that's out there. And it's going, I forgot the fact that when someone gives me a gift, that means that, that changes my sexual identity. I completely forgot about that. And they'll point to and say, this is what queens of the time would wear, these beautiful, colorful garments. So Joseph had this queenly garment given to him, so he was transgender. And you're just kind of going, I don't know where you guys are reading or how you get it. Here's what, what I would say in all of that. We can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. We have to be careful about reading God's Word and letting it speak for itself about what is true and what is false. We cannot seek to attach our truth to God's Word and say, this is what it really means. There are truths and there are falsities. And we need to know what God's Word really says. And so as we talk about this this morning, we're going to kind of get to this first question here, because there's an area that we have to be careful of, that we have to let the Bible interpret itself correctly. And so Brian and I are just going to kind of have a little bit of a, a dialogue, a discussion here on some things, and, um, and we'll just hit this first question. So you'll notice today I'm asking the questions, and I think my answers were a little brief last week. So. <laughs> the one-word answers last week weren't cutting it, man. All right, that was a, um, a great introduction, and I... Um, 100% agree. It, it is about God. It's not about us. We cannot elevate. Um, I cannot manipulate the Bible and, and make it 
what I want it to be. It is what it is. And yeah. I'm, um, I need to change, yeah. not the Bible needs to change. Yeah. Anyway, um, what, does, what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality specifically? Okay. And That's, where yeah. is it addressed? It's a great question. And I would start here by just saying the Bible in the Old and the New Testament condemns homosexuality as sin. And we're going to look at some of those specific instances in a few minutes. Uh, but as a starting point today, I would want to say this to all of us, that the Bible does say that homosexuality, the, the engagement in homosexuality is a sin. But it's one sin in a long line of sins. It's not, only, it's not even only the, the only sexual sin that the Bible talks about and condemns. And so what I would want us to kind of know today is this, that um, our starting point needs to be that we are not here this morning condemning people. Um, we're not here condemning people. Like, I'm not here to kind of say, if you're a homosexual, you're the most evil, you know, vile person on the planet. There are many other sins. This is one in a list. And so we need to be careful about vilifying people who are in the homosexual community who are in the LGBTQ, whatever, how many of your initials that there are, um, for all these different things, that we don't just attach this stigma to them that they are vile and evil and wicked and horrible people, because that's not the case. Uh, and yet the sin of homosexuality is wrong. And so we're not attempting today to, to make the practice of homosexuality the ultimate sin. Uh, we're just going to talk about what does the Bible actually say about this. And so both the Old and the New Testament condemn the practice of homosexuality as a sin. Uh, Leviticus 18, the Old Testament law, goes uh, and lays out all of the things that can, are concerning to God when it comes to, uh, to sexual sin, sexual immorality. Uh, and if you look at those passages, Leviticus 18 and then again in Leviticus 20, in Leviticus 18 it tells you the sins that are wrong. In Leviticus 20 it gives you uh, all of the things that are the punishment for the wrongs regarding sexual sin. Uh, when you go and look at those things, there are actually 22 forms of sexual sin that the Bible outlines and says, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, don't do this, this is a bad way to practice sexuality, this is not in God's favor for sexuality. Uh, and so there are all these kinds of things. In Leviticus 18, it lays out those 22 things. In Leviticus 20, it says the punishment for those things. And so you get this difference between what is acceptable to God, what's not acceptable to God, and how he punishes those things. And homosexuality is one of the sexual sins, one of, of four, that God says is punishable by death. And we're going to talk about punishment and, and the, the weight of these sins in a little while. We'll get to that in just a minute. But um, Leviticus 20 lays out the punishment, and homosexuality is punishable by death, but it's not the only thing that's punishable by death within sexual uh, areas. Uh, another one is this, the adultery. If you go outside of your marriage to have sex with someone, that's punishable by death in the Old Testament law, right? And so we're like, oh, let's don't do that one today. Like, that's not where we need to be, right? And so, um, so adultery is one. Uh, the Bible also says not to marry a woman and her daughter. You can be killed for that, right? Uh, so that's outside of God's favor. Um, uh, don't, marry a, um, uh, don't marry your mom or your stepmom, right? Or don't have sex with your mom or your stepmom. That's out, and most of us are like, yeah, we know. Um, that one's fine. Um, but that one was punishable by death. The other one is not to engage in bestiality. Don't have sex with an animal. Uh, if you do that, you and the animal have to be killed. And so that's part of the punishment of the law, okay? So when we see this, that there are things throughout the Old Testament that the sin of homosexuality is despised by God uh, and his people, and it takes sex outside of the context of God's design. And we hear terms and things like um, when we say, okay, well, homosexuality is an abomination to God. 
right? And, and we've heard that. The King James Version translates it abomination. And, and everybody's been like, oh, yeah, well, the homosexuality is an abomination to God. Yes, it is. But the Old Testament also says that uh, eating certain foods is an abomination to God, like crayfish. Um, and so I had shrimp last night, so that was an abomination to God, I guess, right? And so there are people in the homosexual community, though, that say, yeah, well, God says that homosexuality is an abomination, but he also says that eating pig is an abomination. So all you bacon lovers out there, you need to give that up, right? If you're going to point at us and say homosexuality is wrong, you also need to stop eating bacon. I'm like, okay, hold on. Remember now, again, we have one word in our English language to translate some of the things from Hebrew. And so when we say an abomination, in the Hebrew there are eight words for abomination. And they vary in their weight, right? So one word that is describing uh, God being against certain things for the Israelites to eat has one word for that, that God says that's detestable, that's wrong, because it's engaged in other cultures that they're misusing it. Don't do that. Don't practice that like other cultures do. There's a weightier, heavier word that they use in the Hebrew about the form of homosexuality, the sin of homosexuality. Nobody's killing you for touching a pig. We'll kill you for having sex with someone of the same gender. There's a weightierness, there's a weightiness there that we don't, we describe it the same in our English language, but it's different in the Hebrew. And so when we see these kinds of things, Romans, uh, we've decided, you know, again, that we know better than God how sex should be used. And we've exchanged God's plan for an unnatural one. And so the weight of these things has to be punished in different ways. And so Romans chapter 1, I want to just read this to you and kind of let us walk through this just a little bit. uh, And then we're going to tackle the next part of the question. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they neither knew God, uh, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of God for the immortal, uh, the glory of the immortal God, for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and reptiles and animals. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations with unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts and with other men, and they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, here's what I would kind of point out in this. Our culture has chosen to worship sex. Right? It's everywhere. It's on every TV show, on every movie, on every magazine. You walk through Walmart. You can't even go through the checkout line at the grocery store without having sexual stuff all in your face, right? We've glorified sex. We've worshipped sex. And as a result, we've made sex and our feelings the highest form of good. And we've chosen to elevate that. We've chosen to make our desires trump the trump card for God's plan. And so here's what, what Paul says in Romans. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. Right? So what we've done is we've taken our desire and we said, God, my desire to do whatever I want to do, regardless of what you say, is more important than your revealed truth. And so God says, then I 
and giving them over to the degrading of their minds. If, if that's what you want, if you want to put desire above my will, go for it. But there are repercussions in that. And it says that what God has done, what they've found is that they have received in themselves the due penalty for their error. That they this practice against God, that's the punishment. That's one of the, part of the punishment in this natural world is that they've gone outside of God's plan and they've put their will in place and said, I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of what you say. And so they've elevated themselves over us. And so here's what we kind of get today. We kind of get people saying, um, when we place, replace God's truth with our desires of our wicked hearts, nothing seems wrong, right? I mean, if we say my desires are more important than God's will, nothing seems wrong to us because I can have any desire I want to and elevate it over God's truth. And so we start to get to this place where it's this, this, this slide, right? And so we start saying things like, well, it's not wrong to do drugs if I love drugs. Well, again, that's permissible to you, but it's not beneficial to you to do drugs. It really harms your body. It can land you in prison. It can do all kinds of things, right? Uh, well, it's not wrong if I want to marry my 13-year-old niece because I love her. Wow. Right, I mean, right? But this is the slippery slope we start going down. If I want to elevate my desires above God's plan, then if I love something, then it can't be wrong. I can do whatever I want to do because it's my, the desire of my heart is to engage in this. And if I love it, then it can't be wrong. Uh, it's not wrong to marry someone of the same sex because we love each other. And yet God says, no, that's not the plan. It's not how we've designed it to be. Just because it's your desire doesn't mean that it's the right thing. And uh, one note, you may touch on this <clears throat> again later, I'm not sure, but um, um, just a, this is for everyone, but for men in particular, um, learning how to be a, a Christian leader and a Christian man, um, you need to learn how to <coughs> trust God, mm. trust his word over your own emotions, your feelings, and what is culturally accepted. Yeah, it's really good. That's part of, especially for us men, I mean, like I said, it's for everybody, but um, <clears throat> it's so important in learning how to be a godly man and a godly leader. Um, and it's going to start there. We, we must, uh, the Bible says, the righteous will live by faith. Yeah. Faith in God's Word, despite even maybe some of my misconceptions or yeah. some of my feelings or emotions. If everybody in the world um, is saying it's wrong and God says it's right, then it's right. Yeah, it's good stuff, good thought, man. So moving on, uh, one of the arguments I hear uh, for homosexuality uh, biblically is that people will say, well, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality specifically. Okay. So maybe you can address that. Sure, that's a, that's a really good question, and it is. It's a huge topic in our society. There are people who say, well, Jesus never said anything about it, right? I mean, Jesus d d does not utter the words in the Gospels, homosexuality is wrong, right? Jesus never says that. Uh, and so what we get is people saying, well, if Jesus doesn't condemn it, then it must not be wrong in his eyes. Well, the truth is, is that there are a lot of topics that Jesus doesn't specifically speak about. I mean, Jesus never says abortion is wrong that I'm aware of, and yet none of us here would say that Jesus is pro-abortion, right? He doesn't have to say that because he says things about the value of life. He shows us through his actions that he values life. And so, okay, yet Jesus, this is true, Jesus never addresses personally homosexuality. So does that mean that he's not against it? 
Well, let's look at what he does say. In Matthew 19, he's asked about marriage and divorce, and he starts to have this dialogue. If you want to flip over with me, you're welcome to look at it. Let's just kind of take a, a brief glimpse. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit last week. We'll look at it in a little bit of a different context this week. Um, but Jesus is asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus says, well, haven't you read? This is uh, Matthew 19, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, last week we talked about this in the context of divorce and adultery and that kind of thing. This week I want to look at it through the lens of Jesus doesn't have to say something in a negative sense about homosexuality when he goes on the record very much to say positive things about God's view of marriage. Jesus stands up and gets on the record and says, I mean, if he was with Greta and Ben Sustern or whatever her name is, goes on the record, like we're on Fox News now, and so Jesus is on Fox News, on the record, and he goes, here's the deal. You didn't have to get political. Sorry. <laughs> Tis the season, man. It's almost politics time. So, um, yeah, so he, he would give this answer. Right? And he would say, listen, here's what I believe. I believe that God, in the beginning, created man and female, male and female. And that it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, he's referencing Genesis chapter 2. And when you go back and look at Genesis chapter 2, and you don't have to turn over there, but when you look at what happens in Genesis chapter 2, this is the exact same thing. At the creation uh, of man, when, when God creates them, it says... Um, um, the Lord God found no suitable, or for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Then Moses, who wrote Genesis, he comments and he says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame, right? And so you see that from the very beginning, God creates man and woman. As God has created, if you go back and read the Genesis account, everything God creates benefits one another, right? He creates the sea, and He creates land. He creates the sky, and He creates birds to go in the sky. When He creates the land, He puts animals to go on the land. Right? There are natural things that God does that parallel. They benefit one another. They complement one another. And yet with Adam being alone, the sole man on the planet, when God wants to give him a suitable helper, what does he do? He doesn't create another man. He creates woman. And when Adam looks at her, he goes, this is my other half. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is like me. And then Moses says, and this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. I always thought it was interesting. I was like, I wonder how long it took them. They're naked in the garden. I wonder how long it took them to start figuring stuff out. I'm thinking not too long, really. That's just my own side note on that. You can delete that from your memory later. Um, <laughs> but Jesus affirms the traditional view of marriage and I don't think he has to speak specifically negatively against homosexuality for him to affirm what God's design for marriage is. So, application. Yeah. Um, in our discussion, we've talked about how um, 
biblically, it's clear homosexuality is not God's design. Right. It is a sin. Um, so <clears throat> let's say a uh, we have a gay couple that comes and attends our church. Yeah. How do we as believers handle that? Okay. How do we yeah. as even church leadership sure. handle that? That's a really good question. Um, I would say this. Number one, we would lovingly welcome them. Like, like again, we're not making homosexuality to be the sin of all sins. There are a lot of us in this room this morning that are struggling with sins. And if we knew your sin, and some of you know if we knew your sin, you would be very embarrassed by that. All of us are sinners. All of us struggle with sin. And all of us love one another despite our sin. If a homosexual couple were to come and worship with us at this church, or a homosexual person for that matter, we, I, I would hope, my hope would be for us that we would lovingly welcome them to be here. We want them to experience a loving, Christ-centered community. We want them to hear truth. A lot of the reason that a lot of us engage in any form of sin is because we simply don't know the truth of what the Bible says, why it's wrong, and what we should or should not be doing. And so the more you're exposed to God's truth, the more likely it is that you find repentance and restoration from any sin you're facing. Homosexuality in that same category. And so my hope would be that people who would be confronted continually with truth, accurate teaching of God's Word, what the Bible says, that they would be here engaging with us, worshiping with us, and, and be brought by the Holy Spirit to a place of conviction and repentance. And that's the deal, guys. It's not our job to change people. It's the Holy Spirit's job to change people. It's our job to love people and to show them the goodness of God and to hold them accountable to a place where they will be brought to, to see what God's truth is. That we love them in spite of their faults. We love each other in spite of our faults. If you knew my faults and my sins, I would hope you would still love me and yet hold me accountable. Not kick me out. No, don't do that. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I would go with this. So here's the other thing. You know, why do we make this such a big deal then? Okay, we're not talking about everybody else's sins. We're talking about homosexuality, right? So why do we make homosexuality such a big deal? And I would say this. One, one thing that, that kind of goes into this whole dialogue and conversation, we, we kind of have to because it's, it's in our face, right? I mean, every time you turn on the news, it's out there. Every conversation right now is about this topic. There are people who are lobbying for these things. They want greater and greater acceptance of who they are and all these types of things. And so because it's out there in front of us all the time, as Christians who know God's expressed truth, we're forced to kind of talk about these things. It's not because we are wanting to point out homosexuals as being worse than anything else, but this is out there. The same way that abortion is out there, the, the Planned Parenthood stuff that hit the Internet this week, if you haven't heard about that, it's just mind-blowing. Uh, how callous people can be about the destruction of the, of the human life. And so as Christians, why are we screaming and standing up for the rights of life in that area? Because it's right in front of us. When we're confronted with that thing, we have to respond. Not because we hate them, but because we have to stand up for truth. And so that's why in the church right now, homosexuality is such a big topic of conversation and why people like us are preaching about it is because it's out there. We want to educate and inform people about what does God's Word really say? What is true? How do we engage this conversation? And in order to do that, though, we've got to be out there speaking about it. And even if it's a difficult conversation, we still have to do that. 
And if you don't mind, uh, one other question. Do we hold the world or non-believers to the mm. same standard that's a great question. Uh, that we have within the church? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and I would say, no, we don't. In fact, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter, I believe it's chapter 5. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul again is writing to the church in Corinth. And in verse 9, he says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now listen to this next little tag he gives. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Like we'd have to get on a spaceship and go to Mars. Because if we had to avoid every person that was sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters, who were not Christians, good luck with that. Because they're everywhere. Heck, it's all over the church in a lot of those cases. And so what he says is, I'm not writing to you about those who uh, are outside of the church, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, but is sexually immoral or greedy or a swindler or an idolater or a drunkard um, or a slanderer. And he says, do not even eat with such people. And so he says, when, you know, when there is sin in the church... We hold one another accountable to that sin. In fact, we have permission. There are so many people that go, oh, the Bible says never to judge people. No, it doesn't. It gives us permission to judge one another within the context of the church. But it says be careful when you judge because you can also be judged in return. Right? And so that's the context. Judge not lest you be judged. Right? Don't judge unless you're ready for the same judgment to come back on you. It doesn't say don't judge. It says, don't, uh, it says judge, but know that that judgment, when you open that door, people are going to start putting the microscope on your life too and go, well, what about, you know, what about this? And so for us as believers, Paul says, look, don't associate with people who are brothers and sisters who are claiming to be in Christ, and yet they're practicing idolatry, and they're swindling people, and they're engaging in sexual immorality. And they're doing all these things. Idolatry. These are the things that we say. You can't participate in those things and expect that you're going to be welcomed in the body, that we're just going to treat you like everybody else. Because it goes against God's natural order for what He's created. And so that's, that would be my, my answer to that. Do you have any thoughts on that? I agree. <laughs> that was the right answer. Good. <laughs> Maybe one more question here, and then we're going to start start kind of wrapping up. Have any other thoughts? Well, what um, what are we doing in particular um, in the church, in church leadership, yeah. to plan and, I guess, adapt yeah. to the changing laws in the country? That's a really, really good question, and um, there's so much of this out there right now because of the Supreme Court ruling a few weeks ago. Uh, our family was at the beach when the ruling finally came out, and so I spent about two days um, just reading articles while at the beach and going, what, what was said? What was done? How does this work? What are we going to do now? Like, what's our response? And so um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on out there, but since the government here's, – here's kind of a question to ask, too. Since the government has recognized gay marriage in culture, should we recognize gay marriage in the church? I mean, should we just adapt that? Uh, and I'll ask that one and get back to kind of where you're at. Um, here's what I was saying. Just because the government says something is right doesn't mean it's right. Uh, we live under governmental law. But just because the government affirms and says something is right doesn't mean it's right. The government also says that abortion is right. It funds Planned Parenthood. None of us are saying that that's right. 
or I don't think any of us are saying. If you are, we should have another conversation about that. Um, but none of us are, are favorably supporting abortion and saying that, well, the government says it's okay, so we as Christians should be okay with it too. No, that's not how we think. God's Word, again, is our standard and our truth. Um, so what are we as a church doing? The question that you're kind of asking, what, what are we as a church doing? Our leadership, and I'm going to ask our other elders to join us in just a second to come up uh, here on the stage with me this morning. Um, in fact, if you guys want to go ahead and come up here, you can. Uh, our church leadership has already started reading and studying and researching all kinds of things that's out there. The, the, um, the Christian Freedom Alliance Foundation has given a lot of great helpful information. Uh, Focus on the Family has given a lot of great helpful information. There's so many organizations that are out there that are helping churches make decisions in light of the Supreme Court ruling that homosexuality is okay um, that are helping us to know how do we navigate these things. Now, in the Supreme Court's graces, they did have an amendment in their ruling that said that churches are not required to perform gay marriages, that churches are not required to embrace uh, gay marriage, that we're not required to ordain uh, gay people into ministry. So there are some caveats as of now that have been allotted by the Supreme Court for churches. Uh, what our job is as leadership, and these are the elders of your church, by the way, if you weren't aware of that, um, but what we are doing as leadership now is we've started going into conversations about what things need to be added to our bylaws, what amendments need to be made in order to, in some senses, protect us as an organization um, because there is a difference, and we've talked about this a little bit, there's a difference between us guarding things on the spiritual level and doing things to protect ourselves as an organization. Yes. Uh, Monday through Saturday, we exist as a corporate entity, an organization of some senses, some sorts. We have office time. We spend our hours here. We have things that we have to do in governmental compliance. We follow all the tax codes, all that kind of stuff. Like We are a, an organization during the week. On Sunday, however, we're a place of worship. And we are a faith family, a body of worship of believers. And so you actually had a really good insight into that earlier this week. I'd love for you to touch on just for a minute. Yes, as we, as we talk about bylaws and, and organization and stuff like that, please understand um, we are not changing bylaws to fight a spiritual battle. Right. That is not what that's about. Uh, we're not going to stick another paragraph in a bylaw and all of a sudden sin goes away. Yeah. That's, that's not the goal. That's not the mentality. We are simply, uh, as the Bible says, trying to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. We want to use the wisdom God's given us to, in a, the worldly realm, do what we can um, to make an organization safe and secure yeah. as far as we can. Beyond that, it's up to God. Right. But it's not, uh, we are never going to bring someone to the knowledge of Christ by updating bylaws. Right, absolutely. That's so, a, we that's understand a great that. point. Yeah. So. And, and here's what I would say, how we'll wrap up. Uh, I'm losing my microphone. Ephesians 6 uh, says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers and the principalities, the rulers of this dark world, the spiritual forces in the air. That's where our struggle is. And so we're not doing things as elders, as leadership in the church, that are uh, trying to go against flesh and blood. We're not fighting people here. We're fighting a spiritual battle. There are things going on outside of the context of what we can see, outside of the realms of what we can see, and we're doing our best as church leaders to guard and defend and protect the truth of God's Word, the sanctity of life, the things that He believes, all of these things. We're trying our best to put ourselves in a context where we're leading this church forward spiritually to understand how to engage with people. 
And yet at the same time, we have to put things in place in our bylaws and our, amend those things in order to help protect us from government and those types of things, those institutions uh, that would come along. Because if we don't have things in our bylaws that specifically say we will not do this or we believe this, then if a gay couple came to our church and said we want to get married here, if we don't have anything in our bylaws that restricts that, we are going to lose a, a legal battle. If they took us to court, we would lose that. So we want to do things that would simply defend us in some way and protect us in some ways. And so we're making statements about uh, a statement of biblical authority, a statement about membership, who can and can't be members here, statements on marriage and sexuality uh, and what that looks like, and statements on weddings. Uh, we're we're going to be amending our bylaws to make statements about all of those things. We're already in the works in the process of doing that. Uh, and so just so you as a church body kind of know where we're going and how we're working to defend ourselves and protect ourselves, that's the course of action, okay? Now, how we want to wrap up things this morning, and thanks for kind of helping God guide us today. Um, we wanted to do this more of as a conversation instead of me standing up here and preaching uh, at you or to you or whatever. So I hope this has been a, a good format for you to kind of see how we feel about some things, but do it in a conversational way. Um, what we want to do to close our service out this morning, the band is going to come back up and lead us in another song in just a minute. But before they do, we as elders just want to pray over, over you as a church. Um, and so I'm going to ask a couple of our guys. I'm going to ask Brian and, uh, and Andy, if you will, um, they didn't know I was going to do this, but I am. Um, I'm going to ask you guys just to, to kind of pray over us. Uh, as a church body, pray God's favor over us. Pray that, that God gives us opportunities to be salt and light in this world. Um, and, and we're just going to pray over you as a church. Know that we pray for you all the time, uh, but we want to do that today from the stage here and, and just pray for you. And then as we do, the band's going to come back up. We're going to sing one last song, and then we're going to be dismissed to... Uh, to go and enjoy the rest of our afternoon, okay? Uh, the last thing I would say is this. If you have any questions about what we've talked about today, uh, I'm going to ask the elders to be in the back of the room, just standing back here today. I'm going to be at the Welcome Center out front uh, greeting guests, and if you have questions, you can come and talk to any of us uh, and ask your questions. We'll do our best to answer those for you, knowing that we're not the foremost authority on anything, um, but we'll do our best to answer any questions you may have that this brings up, okay? Uh, we want to be available to you. And we want you to know that in your search for truth, you're not alone. Uh, we believe truth is out there, and you can find it. And so we want to help you find those things, okay? All right, so let's pray together. Dear Lord, we're so grateful that you revealed yourself to us, that you want relationship with us, that you took time to, to show us yourselves through your son Jesus that came and walked and spent time with us 2,000 years ago. And through your revealed word that we can depend on, that we can trust, as we have learned over the last few weeks. I pray over those uh, in our congregation here today who, who may not agree with that. I, I pray for uh, gentle spirits for us to hear them, listen to them, talk with them, and share. I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to be here with all of us as we make decisions for our church uh, that's protective in nature, but that also provides opportunities for us to go out into the world and share the truth in peace. As you've said in, in James chapter 3, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace. Help us to be peacemakers as we live and move and talk with people in the world that disagree with us. We pray that in the name of Jesus. And Father, I too just thank you for the joy we have together together as a family. You tell us 
through your word in Galatians that the most important thing is faith expressing itself through love. And we just lift up this body of believers, Lord. First of all, give us faith. Give us faith to stand with you, to stand on your truth, and to be your witnesses to the world. And that means we're going to have to, at times, um, give hard answers to people, but with gentleness and respect. It means we're, we can't cower down and be embarrassed or be afraid because you've called us to carry our cross, to follow you. And we know there will be suffering for us when we try to do the right thing for you in this world. But we also know, Lord, that this is a spiritual battle, that your Holy Spirit is the one that leads us and the one that really does the fighting for us. We are just to be your vessels. But as we want to live by faith, God, we also want to express it in love. We know that it gives you great joy to see one sinner repent of their sin and come back to you. It's one of the most beautiful things of Scripture, the prodigal who comes home and finds the loving arms of the Father. God, help us never forget that. This world is filled with prodigals, filled with brothers and sisters who have yet to determine that you are their Savior. And we are supposed to be the ones to love them toward the kingdom. So when we come across people, and today we talked about homosexuality, when we come across those, let us not be judgmental. God, let us be understanding. Let us be caring. Let us be the best listener they've ever talked to. Let us be gracious. And let us help them find the hope and the joy and truth that at one time turned us away from the old ways of sin and death into the eternal life that you've given us, God. That is our prayer. Let us reach the unchurched by loving you passionately and other people irresistibly. It's in your precious and holy name we lift these prayers.